What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin, and I hope that your guys' 2022 is off to a fantastic start. I know that mine sure as shit is because you guys are looking at a 2021 fantasy football champion. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, as of this past Sunday, championship was decided this past Sunday, was decided this past Sunday before we even got to the Sunday night football game, which was, of course, Packers and Vikings. This is my second championship in three seasons, and I remain of the opinion that had I not gotten fucked over last season, I would be a three-time, a three a three straight fantasy football champion. If you guys remember, last season, I got absolute, absolutely decimated by the Yahoo Fantasy Sports scoring system. I had, who was it? I think, I forgot. I think I had, I was going up against someone with the Browns defense, or it was the Ravens defense, one of them. And for whatever reason, once a defense allows 35 plus points in a, um, in a football game, Yahoo just stops taking points away. And unfortunately, I got beat by, I think it was less than one point in the first round because of a technicality. But this year, this year, no, 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 definitely not. It was a very rocky season all the way throughout. Not my team necessarily because with the championship included, I did finish 12-3. and I was far and away the best team in the league despite the fact that I didn't have the most potent offense. I think I finished like fifth or sixth in points, believe it or not. But a lot of that was because the um, the biggest upset of this season for me was that Patrick Mahomes, whom I drafted, feeling confident that he would replicate his season from the year before. And to his credit, I think Mahomes still finished like sixth in scoring in our league, which still absolutely phenomenal. But he had a bunch of games throughout the middle of the season where he was just like putting up eight points, 11 points, 13, 12. It was not the Patrick Mahomes that we knew. And fortunately, I was able to withstand that a little bit because thank God for Devontae Adams and Mark Andrews, who were my two most consistent options this season. Mark Andrews in particular really came alive towards the end of the year. He had multiple games in a row, like in excess of like 25, 27. He even got up to 30. Um, One of these past games had 41 earlier in the year, the year as well. But this season, one of the biggest challenges that I had to overcome as a fantasy manager was the fact that my team was just riddled with injuries. So I'm going to go all the way back to week one. Now, what really, what really fucked me more than anything else were the injuries to both Chris Carson and Kareem Hunt. As we know, Kareem Hunt or I don't want to start with Kareem, I want to start with Chris Carson. As we know, Chris Carson missed, I think it was like the last third of the season or so with neck injury. That really that really fucked me over, definitely. And then Kareem Hunt, of course, had that ankle injury in the beginning. So I was circling and trying to find a running back combination that worked. Fortunately, I was able to steal Leonard Fournette, I think in like round eight of this year's draft. And Lenny Fournette, really saved my season. He was the rock that I needed out of the backfield. Him playing alongside Tom Brady is probably the best thing that's ever happened to him in his young career. His emergence as a pass catcher, as well as his development 
as a runner, just being able to put up 100 yards from scrimmage pretty much in his sleep. 100 yards, 100 scrimmage yards, a couple of passes out of the backfield, of course, is huge for PPR leagues. And then he'd even throw in a touchdown or two. But the team that I drafted, pretty much, it was only like, only four or five guys were present in the championship. Of course, this does not include Kenny Galladay, who was the biggest letdown of the season, not only as a Giants fan, but as a fantasy manager as well. I really thought that Kenny Galladay was going to be the safety net that Danny Jones needed to succeed as a young quarterback. And unfortunately, with Daniel Jones also suffering a neck injury that knocked him out for the latter half of the season, Kenny Galladay was relegated to basically doing wind sprints. This guy was out there running cardio or doing cardio, had one target in week 17, which of course is the result of Mike Lennon having to pay quarterback. But just so we can compare week one, I had Patrick Mahomes starting a quarterback, my wide receivers, Devontae Adams, Amari Cooper, Kenny Galladay, two running backs, Chris Carson and Kareem Hunt, tight end Mark Andrews and Leonard Fournette was my flex at the time. I thought the flex was the peak of what Leonard Fournette was going to be. I did not expect him to evolve into a legitimate RB1 this season. Then coming off the bench, Mecole Hardman, Randall Cobb, Devontae Parker, James White, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and Zach Ertz. Zach Ertz. And week 17, the week I just played, the only starters who remained were Mahomes, Amari Cooper, Devontae Adams, and Mark Andrews. Half of my starting lineup had been replaced Throughout the season, I scooped up AJ Green for the la- for uh, the cu- last couple of rounds of the playoffs because no DeAndre Hopkins meant that you know Kyler Murray was going to have to throw to AJ Green just based on the fact that there was nobody else for him to throw to. I picked up Ronald Jones because when Fournette went down, I felt that was the proper decision. It was you know it w- it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that Ronald Jones would have a similar workload to Leonard Fournette, especially considering that. A lot of people thought it was going to be a running back by committee with these two guys because Ronald Jones is a very talented back, but it was just that Leonard Fournette was a little bit better. And unfortunately, Ronald Jones wound up getting hurt this week against the Jets, which left me with only 3.7 points before he left. Fortunately, I also managed to sneak up to grab Rashad Penny. Rashad Penny had been on my bench for the last couple of weeks. I was stuck between... Him and Devontae Foreman or him and Ronald Jones. And ultimately, I settled on Ronald Jones. Even if Jones didn't get hurt with the way that he was running against the Jets, Devontae Foreman would have been the better option. But Penny came through, had two touchdowns, 170 rushing yards. Just fantastic. A fantastic performance when I really needed it. And I think the combination of Mark Andrews and Odell Beckham. Odell, I picked up immediately after he got released by Cleveland because I'm like, um, well, first of all, it was because I needed receivers because by this point I had only Adams and Cooper and Amari Cooper was, you know, kind of up and down this season, at least in, in not in regards to his you know, production, but a lot of his production was relegated or limited because Dallas for the last few weeks, like the latter half of the season, Dak Prescott was simply not targeting Amari Cooper at the same volume that he was previously, which that really bummed me out 100% because I was looking for big things from Amari Cooper. And, you know, he wasn't the worst option, but compared to someone like Devontae Adams, like Devontae Adams is steady getting 9, 10, 11 targets a week, the most sure-handed receiver in the NFL. I mean, this dude put up 30 
and I didn't even I didn't need him to put up anything. Like if I just if I didn't want to humiliate my opponent, I would have swapped him out for like literally anybody else on the Packers. But I don't play that way. So be it. So that was my rationale behind picking up Odell Beckham. And once the reports were starting to circulate that he was going to LA, especially um with Robert Woods tearing his ACL, which of course happened after Odell had signed in LA, that was a great signing. For me, because like this dude gave me 15 points in the championship, which is, you know, really a step up from where he was with Cleveland. And of course, I know the quarterback play is not the same. Baker Mayfield is not even in the same. He's not even in the same solar system as Matthew Stafford. But it was a fantastic season. I'm, I think what I'm most happy about is that my opponent, my friend Anthony, neither of us got fucked over by the COVID protocols in weeks in uh, the championship because that would have been for a year that already had so many uncertainties in regards to the scheduling and who was going to play, who wasn't going to play. It was nice to just avoid all of that and have both of our teams at full strength. And here I am building a little bit of a dynasty. So I think, I don't know if my football acumen has to be respected, but I do think that I am luckier than a lot of the other people in my league because like I love I love being in a fantasy football league with my friends but it really does come down to just luck. That's all it is. Like you can have a good you can definitely draft well. I think I drafted exceptionally well. But Yahoo they gave me I think I think I got a B plus draft grade but they were doing the um like the automated shit after the automatic re- the um automatic recap. And it was like, "Oh yeah, you know, your team's good, but you're going to go 6 and 8." And I think a lot of it was because I was super top heavy. Like I went Devontae Adams and Patrick Mahomes as my one-two in the draft. And that was even a little suspect. Of course, I don't think a lot of people expected Jonathan Taylor to play as well as he did this season. So I missed out on him, unfortunately. But I got Mahomes, I got Adams, Cooper, Kareem Hunt, Chris Carson, and then Leonard Fournette and Kenny Galladay. Like I was looking at those seven picks and I'm like, this is a decent, this is a decent starting. This is a decent starting unit. And then, of course, with Mark Andrews, who's without a doubt the second best tight end in the league right behind Travis Kelsey. Like, I was super ecstatic to get either him or Kelsey because with the way the tight end position works in fantasy football, I feel it's so, like, the position is so finicky. And it really does make or break a lot of teams because if you're getting all these points from everybody else, but it comes down to your tight end and you need 10, 11, 12 points. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of guys in the NFL who are going to give that production consistently. Like tight end is, at least in terms of fantasy, the weakest position in the NFL. There really aren't that many guys that stand out as like legitimate tight end ones. There's, of course, Travis Kelsey. There's Mark Andrews. There's George Kittle when he's healthy as well. But for whatever reason, this guy came back from injury and I was playing against him in the final. This guy comes back from injury and had that one enormous game where he had like 35. And then after that, I think he finished the championship with five and a half points or something. I do want to show some love to Kyle Pitts as well. Uh, he's, I think he's going to be one of the first tight ends off the board next year. I mean, this guy with this, the quarterback situation in Atlanta and even like not just the quarterback situation, but the situation that the Falcons find themselves in. Like Kyle Pitts put up a fantastic, a fantastic season. All things considered, um, I do, of course, want to congratulate everybody in the league. But even with that said, I'm still better than you guys. And we're actually 
before I close out this segment, I'm going to do what what is only right. This is only right. And this is in regards to everybody else in the league. I love y'all, but we are not the same. Of course, for all of the audio listeners, that was, of course, of course, hashtag PackWatch, RIP Boza, rest in piss, you won't be missed. I'm excited for next season. And I do think that, of course, with just how big-brained I am and how lucky I am, I'm going to put myself in another position to claim a championship. Of course, Lord willing, that I get a decent pick. I don't. Every time that we draw numbers to draft, I'm praying that I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't want to draft in the first four picks, especially because we have a 12-person league, which is too many. I, th- I hope we're going to slim it down to 10 for 2022. I want to be like 4, 5, 6. Or maybe even like 4, 5, 6, 7. Because with the when you draft a snake, that gives you the most balanced team, I feel like. If you draft one, you're going to get someone like Jonathan Taylor or Alvin Kamara, but your team might begin to drop off from there and I'm actually quite impressed that my friend Anthony who I played in the championship that he managed to make it to the finals because he had the first pick this season or at least I think he had the first pick this season and he took Saquon Barkley I could be fucking that up did he have the first pick actually now that I think about it I don't remember oh god damn it show me the draft results no, he had, oh, I had it backwards. He had one of the later picks. Okay, so never mind. I mean, even then, 10th out of 12, that's still pretty late. So I'm surprised he made it. And of course, he was the first one to take Jonathan Taylor. Like, and he got fucked over by injuries, COVID, all that. So, I mean, I'm not saying that I want to draft anywhere else other than like fourth or fifth or sixth, but... We'll see what happens. And now with that out of the way, let's get on to some fucking basketball news, boys and girls. I'm not sure. I'm sure you guys noticed. Um, This was, this is a couple days old, this story. And it's been a long time coming. It's been a very, very long time coming. But San Antonio Spurs assistant coach Becky Hammond is now officially the head coach of a basketball team. However, she will not be coaching in the NBA just yet. For whatever reason, no NBA team felt that she was, uh, whether they felt she wasn't ready, whether they felt she wasn't qualified, they have not taken a swing on Becky Hammer for whatever reason, even though she's proven herself to be quite a good fucking coach with the San Antonio Spurs. However, she's making, oh, I don't want to say she's making the leap, but she's going back to her WNBA roots, and she signed with the Las Vegas Aces to be their next head coach. Last Thursday, Becky Hammond announced, uh, okay, let's watch the video. We're going to watch the video, actually. There's so many. I think I cannot emphasize the importance of this opportunity um, that I have and that 
I think this is more advantageous for growth. There, there's something to being a head coach. You know, I, I sat in a lot of um, head coaching interviews and, you know, I don't think there's any one, two things that people always said, you know, you've only been in San Antonio and you've never been a head coach. Well, I can tell you right now, Mark Davis met me, Nikki met me and said, that's a head coach right now. That's a head coach right now. We're going after her. She's the person. And so that's why they got me. Here's the thing with that opening statement from Becky Hammond. Meanwhile, she is 100% um, worthy of getting this job. But for coaches or for whomever, whomever is conducting the interviews of this team to be like, to say, oh, you've only been in San, in San Antonio as a negative is very bizarre to me. Because if you are a young head coach, there really is no other better place to be then with the San Antonio Spurs, I mean, maybe the Golden State Warriors, I'd also argue that um, potentially the Miami Heat as well. But San Antonio under studying under Greg Popovich, learning how someone who is arguably the greatest coach of all time goes through preparation in every aspect of his job. And then beyond that, just the schematic advantage of learning under Greg Popovich, because the San Antonio Spurs. And through all throughout the tenure that Becky Hammond has been there, they still play basketball the traditional way, which I feel is an excellent foundation for any head coach because you understand that part of the coin, but then also having to coach against teams in the Western Conference like Portland, like um, Golden State, you learn how to game plan against the teams that are more modernized. And that's invaluable because the greatest issue that so many head coaches run into, at least nowadays in the NBA, is that their game plans are very lackluster. And a lot of the times they are, I feel, a little too reliant on their star players if they're lucky enough to go to a team that has multiple star players. Like, I mean, I'm watching Steve Nash coach and I'm still blown away that this team is not, or this team as in the Brooklyn Nets is not more dominant because look at the weapons that you have. I mean, I know Kyrie hasn't played yet. I know Joe Harris isn't playing right now, but this team is on a three-game losing streak where they've lost to the Clippers, who they beat, and they lost because they collapsed. And they also just got fucking demolished by the Memphis Grizzlies, who were beating them by like 30 at one point. How do you have Kevin Durant and James Harden, and you're just letting them, or you're not trying to do what they do best? Like they're settling for threes a lot of the time. There's no fluidity to the offense. There's none of that. Working for someone like Greg Popovich, you understand how a basketball team is supposed to function in a half-court setting, which is the hardest area for any coach to excel at. And then, of course, defensively as well. But uh, let's get back to this. Um, and I couldn't be prouder to come back to the W. Um, it's where I'm from. It's We're not even having this conversation if it wasn't for the WNBA. So I couldn't be happier to come back and give back and invest in these girls, not only as basketball players, but as young women and as leaders, not only in the community, but in the world. So I am stoked. There's so many uh, great women coaches out there um, that should be leading their own teams and uh, given those opportunities. I mean, we have never had these press conferences when it came to a man leading a woman's team. We just haven't. We always have them. And there's all these conversations about either women leading a men's team, which really hasn't happened yet. So once you start getting into these, um, these leagues and you start seeing, you know, Sandy Brundella has won championships in, in the W. 
another benefit, of course, of Becky Hammond going back to the WNBA is that, say what you will about the WNBA, a lot of basketball fans really don't appreciate it for what it is. Um, it's a very, it's used as a punching bag for a lot of sports fans, a lot of immature sports fans, but ultimately in the realm of like basketball comedy, if that's even a thing, it's very low hanging fruit. And ultimately it's never, it's always just about the aesthetic of what the WNBA is, where it's seen as an inferior league to the NBA. When in actuality, it's equally as talented Unfortunately, I don't feel it's as marketable for some strange reason. I think I do think that's because like there is this weird sex. There's this in, almost like inherent sexism in a lot of younger sports fans where there are certain sports that are female dominant, things like soccer, things like volleyball. And then there are other sports that are inherently male dominant, you know, basketball, football, the four major sports. But a lot of those sports I'm talking about basketball, of course, and then soccer, like the leagues are the same in regards to talent. It's just, again, the aesthetics of the conversation. Like the WNBA is seen as an inferior product because it's not as quote unquote entertaining as the NBA. There aren't, you know, these hyper athletic players who are jumping 48 inches, who have a 48 inch vertical leap. There is, there isn't any of that in the WNBA. However, what the WNBA has that the NBA doesn't have is a much more fundamental approach to basketball. And you see this, there are a lot of college teams, a lot of men's college teams that play basketball like WNBA teams, which is the quote unquote right way. I don't want really want to say it's the right way, but it's the more fundamental way. You actually get in the half court and you run sets. You practice making these simple passes. You're not just going to play one-on-one the entire game. And it's another great avenue for Becky Hammond to take because she gets to absorb even more of that after she had already spent however many years with Greg Popovich. But Becky Hammond again makes another another good point when she's talking about how, you know, male head coaches aren't perceived this oh, I don't know. She didn't say they weren't perceived the same, but like she was talking about certain press conferences and how women, of course, female head coaches are unfortunately held to a different standard than male head coaches. And one of the reasons, one of like the um, the societal reasons or the cultural reasons, whatever, what have you, that Becky Hammond was kept out of a head coaching slot in the NBA is that people were saying how you can't have a female head coach in a room full of all male athletes. Like it simply won't work. The dynamics of those two genders simply won't work. And that doesn't really make any sense to me because in college, you have male head coaches for female basketball teams. Look at Gino Oriyama, who's the most dominant head coach that women's collegiate basketball has ever seen right up there with, of course, legendary Pat Summit. Like, why does that work? Why does a 60-some-odd-year-old man, I don't know how old he is, but he's probably in his 60s, how does he operate in a locker room full of 18, 19, 20-year-old girls. Is it, again, the basketball thing? Because if that's the case, why can't Becky Hammond be the head coach of a basketball team? If she knows what she's talking about in regards to basketball, you could put her in any NBA locker room and she'd, you know, theoretically, she'd thrive. Or if we go back to the WNBA, where there are male head coaches, how come that works? A 
an adult male in charge of a fem- an all-female team? Why does that work? Why does it being an all-male basketball team and a female head coach make it different? Is there even... I don't feel that there's a legitimate... There's a legitimate reasoning for that. I think that I'll... I really think it ultimately comes down to teams don't want a female head coach. And I think they're not afraid of her performance because her performance is proven. She's a proven head coach. She's a proven basketball player. I think it's all optical. And the way that a lot of NBA teams conduct themselves, well, I can't even say that because there are teams that make a lot of suspect decision-making, but they are aware of the optics. They are aware of the PR that they're going to get, but that like, I don't, I don't think that's valid for not hiring her. Much like I don't think it's valid for you to look at Becky Hammond and be like, yeah, well, you've only been in San Antonio. Like, don't you think that there's a reason that she's only been in San Antonio, that Greg Popovich has entrusted her as a valued member of his coaching staff? The NBA, um, you know, uh, Cheryl Reeves. I mean, these are quality coaches, period. Take off any other label. They are great coaches, period. And quite frankly, I've been watching the WNBA for a long time and stealing all their plays for a while. So <laughs> they have great basketball minds and, um, you know, they, they are 100% invested in what they do and they are the best at what they do and they should be paid as such and they should be rewarded with these positions as such. Again, nothing but facts. Straight up. Straight up. When it gets down to it, if we're talking X's and O's, we're talking offensive schemes, defensive schemes. You can go to any basketball team in America, whether it's college, whether it's professional, whether it's amateur, even if it's a fucking high school team, and you can give them a playbook. And of course, you know, the higher up, the more professional you are, the more in-depth the plays are going to be. But the basics of running an M- of running a basketball team, the on-court basics are all the same, right? The Golden State Warriors can run the same playbook as the Las Vegas Aces, as the New York Liberty. It's just different personnel. Of course, you're going to have to adapt the playbook to the kind of personnel that your team has, but that's with any that's with any basketball team. So I'm, just, I'm very excited um, for Becky Hammond. I think that, I don't know how long, I don't know how long the contract is for. I'm not, where is it? Hammond will finish the season with the Spurs, then she'll inherit an Aces team that posted the WNBA second-best record last season and lost in the playoff semifinals. She replaces Bill Lambeer, who left his position after coaching the season's four Aces. Uh, uh, for four, what was it? For four, four seasons, whatever. I don't know how long the contract is for. I would imagine it'll be for a couple of years at least, but I think if, for whatever reason, Becky Hammond goes to the WNBA, and, you know, shows that she can be the head coach of a basketball team and she establishes herself as a legitimately good head coach, I think it'll be a no-brainer for a team, for, you know, probably a young team in the NBA to finally allow her to transition into that role. I think a young team would be best for her in her NBA future just because less pressure and then she'll be able to also like adapt to whatever the NBA looks like in three or four years. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Congratulations to Becky Hammond. This is uh it's it's monumental for her. I mean it's she's not in the NBA. She's not an NBA head coach quite yet, but I don't think I don't think we're that far 
away from it. Now, talking about the NBA, this was a fucking mighty funny story that <laughs> I felt is, um, it really encapsulates the dysfunction that's going on in Houston right now. As we know, the Houston Rockets are one of the worst teams in the NBA. They have been a little bit better as of late with Christian Wood coming out to play. Um, of course, there's still a lot of uncertainty surrounding John Wall. I do see them being a bottom-tier team at the um, at the end of the season. They will be in competition for the first overall pick, but this is a story about Christian Wood and Kevin Porter Jr. Kevin Porter Jr. has... He is definitely... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, before you want to know what before I start projecting. In short, this is a story about the Rockets suspending two of their better young players, Kevin Porter Jr. and Christian Wood, for quote unquote poor behavior, according to um a couple of ESPN's reporters, them being Woj and Tim McMahon. Rockets assistant coach John Lucas called out Porter's performance and Wood's effort during halftime of Saturday's loss to the Denver Nuggets. Porter left Toyota Center during the second half after he allegedly threw an object and needed to be separated from Lucas. Holy shit. Wood did not start against the Nuggets. Punishment for reportedly missing a scheduled COVID test. All right. That's not, that's fucking hilarious. One of the team's young players also challenged Wood's leadership. He played eight listless first half minutes and allegedly refused to re-enter the game after halftime. <laughs> I like how these instances of poor behavior could not be more polar opposite. You have Kevin Porter Jr. looking like J.R. Smith light after he threw that fucking can of soup at one of the Cavs assistant coaches. This man threw something at John Lucas and was booted from the arena. He pulled an Antonio Brown, man. He straight up vacated the premises. And then you have Christian Wood, who, uh, for whatever reason, missed his COVID-19 test. I don't understand how... That happens. Um, I feel, given the nature of the virus, how the United States has recently just recorded 1 million plus cases of the new Omicron variant, how there isn't like team personnel who are dragging these guys to their appointment, like by their ears, tying them in a straitjacket, dragging them, dragging them down the hallway of the hotel just to get this fucking PCR test or whatever it is. I don't understand how. That happens. I think some of that, it definitely falls on the Rockets for not doing a little bit more. But this shit, this is like the shit I love with NBA players is like their their just refusal to either check in to a game when they're called or their refusal to sit on the bench for the la for the last little bit of a game that they're getting blown out. And it's just like it it's so petty. It's so minuscule. It is literally the minutia of being. A basketball player is I'm surprised it doesn't happen more frequently honestly but then again there is a reason why this shit like this only happens with dysfunctional teams like I don't know if the Rockets are necessarily the best at putting out these kinds of fires in the locker room and then this is like this is the icing on the cake one of the team's young players also challenged Wood's leadership I would love to know who that young player is because Christian Wood is like like, he's only, like, 28 or something, right? He's still a fucking young player in his own right, I believe. Where's he at? He's 26. He's 26. He's been with this team for two years. 
I don't know if Christian Wood is the right leader for the Houston Rockets. And this isn't a shot to him. This kind of goes for all kinds of athletes. There are some guys who just are great players, but they're not leaders or at least leaders in the rock in the locker room because you can go out onto the court and you can lead by example, right? You're Christian Wood. You're putting up 16 and 10, 17 and 10. You're good for, you know, maybe 21 and 10 like you were last season. That's leading by example. But leading in the locker room is different. Like knowing when to encourage guys, especially young players. Like if you're someone who's been in the NBA for six, seven years like Christian Wood has, you should, you know, have developed a little bit of emotional intelligence when it comes to dealing with younger players because I can't speak from experience, but I could imagine that, you know, you're someone who comes to the NBA from college. You've been a great basketball player your entire life, right? Dominated in high school, goes to a mid-major, potentially a power five college, and then you come here and it's just struggle city. You're riding the struggle bus, right? You feel like you're the only person on the struggle bus. You need someone to kind of be like, hey man, listen, I'm missing shots, but that's okay. Like it's an adjustment period. You're 20 years old. You're 19 years old. You're not going to come in and be LeBron. You're not going to be Zion. You're not going to be John Moran. It's just, it's just the facts of the situation. Not everyone is going to come in and be this electrifying rookie. Just keep your head up. And most importantly, keep shooting and don't get in your own head. That's the kind of things that young players or young, young teams, young players both need. And that's also why locker room guys, veteran presences are so crucial for younger teams because they are that uplifting voice or essentially need someone to kind of be like, hey, we got our fucking dicks kicked in. Like I tweeted about this yesterday in regards to the Nets and their starters and how Steve Nash is just kind of like, I I will never forget that one time where someone called Steve Nash an NPC on my timeline. And my only response was that, and he's not even a fallout NPC. Like he's not well thought out. He doesn't have you know, this huge backstory. He's not funny. He's not witty. He's just there. He's literally just on the sideline. No thoughts, just vibes. And your team is getting pissed on by 35 or whatever it is. You're getting out-rebounded like 52 to 20. How are you not infuriated as a head coach? How are you not throwing a temper tantrum on the sideline? How are you not doing any of that? Because that's a reflection on you. I get that we have Kevin Durant. And James Harden. And, you know, the preparation might not be as much. But you have no excuse to be down by 30 with two MVP candidates on your starting roster. And then the bench comes in and they wind up cutting the lead to like 13 or 15 or whatever it was. How does that not rile you up? Because that riled me up and I'm sitting there watching the fucking game. I'm not even a part of the team. Like, that's what you need. You need guys who are emotive. And then also guys who are adaptable to the needs of everybody on their team, which is the hardest part of being a locker room leader, which is why not everyone is born to do that. But it's just like, I wonder if this is like, I wonder if this is a one-off instance or if this is just going to be perpetual because Kevin Porter Jr. has had multiple oh how do I he's had multiple run-ins with authority figures 
right? He doesn't seem to be the calmest guy in the locker room, which, you know, he's young. He's stupid. I understand. Like, he hasn't done anything crazy. He hasn't fucking killed anybody. Um, well, I mean, there was actually that uh, reported domestic violence or the um, the domestic disturbance that Kevin Porter Jr. was involved in. But listen, there's, I don't condone these actions. I'm not condoning him hitting anybody. But when you're young and you're dumb, you do stupid things. That's just how it is, right? He got caught um, with a gun as well. He got um, caught with a little bit of weed as well. The weed, I'm not really too concerned with, but like the gun and then also the domestic dispute. Like this is now your third instance of like kind of being violent towards somebody. Like what's going to happen? I understand that he was not indicted on any of these charges. And um, really, as far as I'm concerned, there's no reason to bring them up. But like, this is a pattern of behavior. What else? Uh, a heated locker room dispute in January 2021 proved to be the final straw for the Cavaliers. Porter allegedly vented his frustration when the team reassigned his locker to newly acquired veteran Tarian Prince. The frustration spilled over into an argument. Um, yeah, that's minor though. That's kind of disrespectful by the Cavaliers actually. <laughs> so like, this is, again, this seems to be a pattern of behavior. Like, and I don't think that Kevin Porter Jr. is a bad guy, right? He just made some bad decisions. Now, of course, when it comes to talking about athletes who have a history of this, there really isn't like any sympathy shown towards them. Maybe not sympathy. I think empathy is the word that I'm looking for. Like, yeah, you definitely don't want to sympathize with the guy who's like repeatedly putting himself in these weird situations, but like at least try to look at it from his point of view. But of course, sports fans have the hardest time doing that because they just they look at these people as they don't understand that they're human. They're putting on a show for millions of dollars in front of tens of thousands of people. Like there's a disconnect between the athlete and the human. And I think that that really alters people's perceptions of athletes when they do dumb shit off the court. Like maybe the Cavalier or the Cavaliers may, I, I don't know if the Rockets should try to get APJ some help, but like, I don't know if, I don't know how they're going to reprimand him. Like suspending him, I guess is like, you're doing that just to set a precedent. Like, Hey, you can't be doing shit like this. But that's more of more so for the rest of the team than for them just to make sure like, you know, the other players on the team understand that there are consequences to these type of things. But other than that, like, what are you going to do with Kevin Porter Jr.? Are you going to try to get him help? Because like, he might need it. I'm not, you know, trying to um, diagnose him with anything. Um, I'm, I also don't, I'm not too abreast of his background. Like if there's anything that happened back when he was um, a kid, but, like, this guy's, again, repeatedly, he's repeatedly making bad decisions over and over. Like, there might be something going on with him. And I hope that at some point it ceases and he gets the help that he needs. Because the last thing we want is we don't want this to spiral into what we saw with Antonio Brown. For instance, how Antonio Brown, within the span of three or four years, has pretty much, like, hit rock bottom it feels like there was that whole 
uh, I forgot if it was sexual assault or rape or what the legality of it was, but there was that instance with a former personal trainer. Of course, there was also that instance of him faking his vaccination or getting a fake vaccine card. And it kind of just all culminated with him storming off the field uh, during the Bucks game against the Jets. Like, there's something seriously wrong here. Like, somebody needs help. And I'm not trying to equate, again, like not trying to equate Kevin Porter Jr. to Antonio Brown, but you don't want to see it get to that point. Because that's ultimately like, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if you'd be able to bring somebody back from that. Like you could try, but especially like Kevin Porter Jr. is still young, right? So he at least has that. I don't even want to call it an excuse, but that's at least the easiest way to justify it. But uh, we're going to get back to some actual basketball talk. And we're going to talk about the Memphis Grizzlies. We're going to talk about John Morant and how he is absolutely fucking incredible. Great great young player who is developing at such a fast rate that folks are already beginning to talk about if you redraft him first ahead of Zion Williamson. And of course, this argument is gaining traction, not because John Morant is outplaying Zion Williamson, but because Zion Williamson, but because John Morant is playing and Zion Williamson is not. And this happens all the time. Zion Williamson, unfortunately, has still not made his debut he's still suffering with whatever lower body injury he's had for the last couple of months and while he's doing this John Morant has led the Grizzlies to I think it's like a 24 and 14 record at the time of this recording Memphis is 24 and 14 fourth in the Western Conference three games ahead of Denver in the loss column and Ja is averaging about 25 points nearly like six boards and almost seven assists shooting uh, close to 50 percent from the field and 40% from three and motherfuckers are like, would you take Ja over Zion? If we were doing a redraft? No bitch, because it's three seasons in, I'm not doing a redraft. It's three fucking seasons. Let's, let's pump the brakes a little bit. But of course, John Morant, there is no denying the fact that he is an incredible player. Uh, I'd say an all NBA caliber player for sure. And definitely, he's definitely going to be making the all-star team this year. And his teammate, Desmond Bain, had had immense praise for his young point guard, especially after watching him put up, oh God, put up 36, 6, and 8 against the Brooklyn Nets on Monday night. Desmond Bain said, quote, he's special. People debate whether or not he should be an all-star, but I think we should be debating whether he's the best point guard in the league. I don't think it's any question he's an all-star. The real conversation is, again, is he the best point guard in the league? And while it may seem crazy to say yes, and it kind of is, you can't, we can no longer deny the fact that John Morant is an upper echelon point guard. And I don't care that Damian Lillard has been playing below his typical level of production. I also don't care that Kyrie Irving is not playing at all. Even if those two guys are playing at 100%, John Morant is still in the upper echelon of NBA point guards. It used to be, you know, Steph, Dame, and Kyrie, like those were the three guys in the top tier, but it's no longer just them, right? We got to show some love to Trey Young. Trey Young's averaging like 29 and 9, 29 and 10 or something. He had 56 and 14 on Monday night. We got to throw Donovan Mitchell. 
in there as well. I think it'd be disrespectful not to, even though um, Donovan Mitchell is, I mean, listen, throw Donovan Mitchell in there. Because if we're going to throw Kyrie Irving in there, him and Donovan Mitchell are very similar, very similar to one another, at least in terms of their play styles, being a score first point guard or an undersized shooting guard or what have you. But John Morant is is definitely there, dude. He's definitely he's definitely in that conversation. Again, if he qualified for the scoring leaderboard, he'd be 10th, I believe. Unfortunately, him having only played 26 games doesn't make him eligible to be on the leaderboard, but he'd still rank 10th. He's still one of the more efficient point guards in the NBA. Someone who just every time you watch him, every time you watch him, he makes a highlight. He's a highlight real caliber point guard. And even more so now that he's a reliable three-point shooter because him shooting damn near 40% or actually 40.4% from three, it makes his penetration game even more effective. And this guy was an immense driver even two years ago or last year. Now I think he's like second in the league in points per game, which is absolutely insane when you think about the fact that John Morant is 6'3 and barely 170 pounds. I mean, he's a freak athlete and that helps tremendously. But, you know, once you beat your man on the perimeter, you're not getting bodied by guys at your position. You're getting bodied by Rudy Gobert, you're getting bodied by Nikola Vucevic, uh, Kevin Durant, LeBron, Giannis. Like, you're like, it's not penetrating the paint in the NBA has always been an exceptionally scary proposition for a lot of smaller players even guys who are a little bit bigger than Ja and Ja being as slender as he is makes it even more frightening I guess as well when he attacks and there is a little bit of contact but this kid is just otherworldly there really is no way to describe him he's extraordinary he's spectacular and it's just maybe it's because maybe I'm biased because I don't watch that much of the Grizzlies so I don't see when he's doing things wrong but he just, he plays the game. He plays his game, which is so, so, so difficult for any young point guard to come in and do. Much like being a young quarterback, being a point guard in the NBA is the is one of the most difficult positions in sports. You are responsible for everybody else on your team. You are an extension of the coach on the field. You are the quarterback of your basketball team. And to come in, and be that in today's NBA, today's NBA, where the stakes for being a point guard are so much higher. Him putting up numbers like this is, it really is indescribable. Like the fact that he's 22 years old and in the same category as Steph Curry and a healthy Kyrie Irving and a healthy Damian Lillard, I think speaks more to Ja's skill set than his numbers do. There's really no other way for me to describe it. What else is there to talk? Oh, this was another thing I wanted to bring up. Fucking Quinn Snyder. All right. What's that? Jesus Christ. RIP headphone users. I'm sorry about that. Usually the ESPN videos are automatically muted for me. Um, I guess this article just said, fuck you, bozo. So the other day, I got this story. And it was, it was Quinn Snyder, the head coach of the Utah Jazz, talking about um, Draymond Green being in the MVP conversation 
And I looked at it and I said, what the fuck is this man talking about? What, what is happening? What parallel universe are we in where someone is legitimately mentioning Draymond Green in the MVP conversation, right? And this is, this sounds very disrespectful and I'm sure, you know, this could easily be interpreted as me being disrespectful and I have no and I'm definitely do not intend to disrespect the Draymond Green. I think he is a hell of a basketball player. Definitely, definitely in the defensive player of the year conversation. But when you're talking about the MVP, right? And of course, Quinn Snyder didn't say that I think Draymond is going to be the MVP. He was more so talking about the MVP in terms that it's supposed to be talked about in in how Draymond does so much for his team. And when he's on the floor, how he makes everybody significantly better in terms of defense, passing, rebounding. The only blemish against Draymond Green is that he is an absolutely horrific offensive player, at least when it comes to scoring. But he works so well in the Warriors system that he doesn't have to go out and be this big-time scorer. And, you know, Quinn Snyder, of course, is, I'm, I don't know why Quinn Snyder even mentioned this, but Green, of course, was tremendously um, appreciative. He said, I agree with, uh, with Quinn, and that is someone who sees the game for what it is. Like his comments said, Green, don't, Green doesn't go out and get the numbers. He just kind of does it in all ways. I don't think it can be explained any better. I'm not going out to make an MVP case by stacking my numbers up against Steph or KD or Giannis. It's not going to be like that. But I think the way I impact the game, things I do on the floor, the things I do to impact winning, I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, there certainly is. And like, I'm sure Draymond Green is going to make an all-NBA team this year because like, the numbers don't tell the whole story. right? And he's probably going to win Defensive Player of the Year. He's definitely going to be on the all-defensive team. But... We're going to pump the brakes a little bit here, and I'm going to put my hater cap on for a second. But as far as I'm concerned, we need to fully acknowledge the fact, and Draymond said this as well, Kevin Durant, Giannis, Nikola Jokic, Steph Curry, those are MVP candidates. If you're not contributing to that level, you do not deserve to be in the MVP conversation. I get that Draymond Green does a lot of things that impact winning. But when you're comparing him to someone like Steph Curry, ladies and gentlemen, the Golden State Warriors are not in the position that they're in if Steph Curry is any less than Steph Curry. They're not the best team in the Western Conference if he's anything less than what he is now. They're not championship contenders without Steph Curry. Like maybe I'm this is a very reductionist way of looking at the MVP voting. But anyone who's in the MVP voting, you do have to kind of take a step back. If they are in a loaded team, like someone like Kevin Durant is or someone like Steph Curry is, would their impact still be as noticeable if they were, without a doubt, the best player on their team? Like if the team was them and no other stars, would their impact still be as grand? Would it still be as noticeable? And with a lot of guys, yes, 100%. 
Kevin Durant, Steph, Giannis, um, LeBron, you take away all of the things that make their team great and you put them on an average team. And I hate I, it's so weird how I literally hate when people do this. Well, I hate when people do this, like the whole average, like the whole one for one swap. I hate when people do it as their whole argument in an MVP debate, in an MVP debate, because I totally understand that it's going to come up regardless of anything. I, I totally, I totally acknowledge that. But there are other things to take into account when talking about the MVP, right? And not just swapping guys one for one. As great as Draymond Green is, like, he is not on the same level as all of these other guys. And I'm not saying he's all the way down at the bottom. But he's, like, two or three tiers below the upper echelon of NBA players. I just thought, like, I, I looked at this article, and I debated talking about it because, like, this is so, it's so easy for me to look like a hater. And I definitely look like a hater. And I kind of don't care. But maybe I'm just weird in the sense that I don't think like anybody who contributes to winning deserves to be in the MVP conversation. Like I think that maybe that's just me being pretentious, but there are a lot of guys. Um, there aren't a lot of guys like Draymond Green, but there are guys like Draymond Green who do things that impact winning, but they're not being talked about, right? Is why if we're going to make this argument, do you want to include Lonzo Ball in the MVP? What the fuck? I'm so sorry. I totally just got off track. At any rate, if we're going to talk about Draymond Green in this context, are we going to talk about Lonzo Ball as a potential MVP candidate as well? Because Lonzo, for what it's worth, very much impacts winning in a similar way to Draymond Green. Lonzo is averaging about five assists, five and a half boards, almost two steals, a block a game. And he's giving more in scoring, and he's a more reliable three-point shooter. Are we going to talk about Lonzo Ball in the MVP conversation now? Because Lonzo Ball, very similarly to Draymond Green, does all of the things that help elevate Chicago to another level. But they're amplifying what's already there in Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan. It's like when you're cooking, right? I've been watching a lot of MasterChef. I'm a MasterChef Andy now. But if you have a spectacular seasoning, like a base seasoning, and you add salt to it, which you, of course, should, the salt is going to amplify all of the other flavors that the seasoning has or that the sauce already has. Lonzo Ball and Draymond Green in this conversation are the salt. They are just as important as anything else. But by itself, salt might not be enough. You know what I mean? Like if you have a piece of chicken, a piece of dry chicken breast, and you just put salt on it, that's good because it's something, but you're not extracting all the flavor out of the chicken breast, mainly because there is no flavor to extract. So you need other things. You need some garlic. You need some herbs, some herbs and spices, some oregano, some thyme, 
some rosemary if you're feeling frisky. If you're an Italian, you got to put some olive oil on there, some garlic, some paprika. Like, I'm trying to avoid throwing everybody into the MVP race, especially when there are other guys that are doing more, right? Like, Joel Embiid is doing more with less. Lonzo Ball is in a similar tier to Draymond Green. Same thing with like someone like Patty Mills, right? Patty Mills, of course, does not match up to Green statistically. And even Lonzo doesn't really match up to Green statistically. But I think it just comes with the territory. Uh, if we just can compare usage rates real quick, I think that'll be very helpful. Their usage rates are about the same. Green is playing less minutes, but he is such a big piece of Golden State's offense. And Golden State's offense is kind of built. It's built around Draymond Green as much as it is Steph Curry. But Green is put in very... Green is put as the primary playmaker to Steph Curry, if that makes any sense. Like, Lonzo Ball does not have that in Chicago. He's kind of just going out and playing his game. But that's... I feel that that's inadequate conversation so I'm not trying to say that Draymond Green is not a great player I think he's a fantastic player and I've said it in the past like Draymond Green is just as instrumental to the Warriors winning as Steph Curry but I don't think he's as responsible to it as Steph Curry is it's close but this is like the last thing I want to do is give the NBA media or yeah the last thing I want to do is just give basketball media the freedom to just create these fucking narratives i really got to investigate this fucking sound it's driving me crazy i think to uh to close this one out we're gonna talk about jeremy grant because i fucking love jeremy grant i'm a fucking i'm a i'm a grant andy i'm a stan i'm the ceo of the jeremy grant stan hive i'm the ceo of the fucking jeremy grant hive i'm the ceo of whatever i'm the ceo of being a dumbass actually ceo of not being able to fucking talk so we're back on cbs sports i absolutely fucking despise this website um their actual site is dog shit like what the fuck is going on here why is the banner up top why does it not why does it not go back to where it was there's this fucking dumbass white stripe whatever this is a uh, report from who's this a report from Oh, God, The Athletic. I was having such fucking problems with The Athletic before. For some godforsaken reason, my Athletic account is attached to Facebook, and it was simply not letting me sign in. Like, the the connect with Facebook button was not working. So, unfortunately, um, I cannot go to The Athletic. I cannot puncture that paywall. So, we're just going to have to, we're just going to have to work with this. The Athletics' James Edwards III reports that contenders are routinely calling about Jeremy Grant. While Edwards does not report any specific suitors, he did speculate on a number of possibilities. One notable possibility is Chicago, because as 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 Edwards reports, the Pistons were high on both forward Patrick Williams in the 2020 NBA draft. Chicago selected Williams fourth overall, um, four picks before Killian Hayes, and Ligaments is expected to miss the season with a wrist ligament injury i think i'm probably i think i mentioned that last week at how chicago trades from for jeremy grant and it is the freakiest starting five in the nba levine derozan Vucevic, grant um and then either 
I'd probably go Lonzo Ball over Alex Caruso, but either one of those guys, like especially Lonzo, that lineup is freaky, dude. That lineup is freaky. That's a championship caliber starting five. Um, it would just come down to who do the Bulls part with, especially again Chicago, uh, Detroit having most of the leverage in this situation. Like, would they really try to finesse Chicago? Like, okay, listen, you got to give us like Kobe White and a uh, fucking Alex Caruso or some shit like that. Like, I don't think the Bulls would definitely not police the Pistons. I think the Pistons know better. But, God, I want to see Jeremy Grant on Chicago so bad. Even though I I don't really because, again, that would basically mean um, GGs. That would be easy claps for my Brooklyn Nets, unfortunately. But I think just I think that in terms of watching a team that's already – Super watchable. I mean, DeMar DeRozan playing like an MVP. This guy hit buzzer beaters in fucking back-to-back games. That's something that even I couldn't do playing in my front yard and dreaming up the scenario and imagining the scenario myself. Like, this guy is absolutely fucking insane. Zach Levine as well. I mean, like, Chicago is just, they're, they're they're on another level. Like, they're on another level right now. And I think with that, I think that's going to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, thank you guys so much for coming to hang out with me today. Everything that I'm associated with is down in the description box below. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow me on all my social medias. Leave a like, leave a rating, leave a review, whatever possible on whatever podcast listening platform you're using. As always, also tell a friend about it. If you liked it, tell a friend. If you didn't like it, no press is, or fuck, what is it? All press is good press. Thank you guys again, and I'll catch y'all in the next one.